It is a mercy of God that we cannot see the future in this fallen world. Can you imagine living out the day on which you knew that you would break your arm? By not seeing the future, you can break your arm at 9.37 p.m. and have a great day right up until that moment. If you knew you were going to lose a relationship that meant the world to you, you'd never really allow yourself to enjoy it while it lasted. You'd always be trying to shake loose from it, never fully embracing it because you knew it would go away. If we knew everything about the future, we'd really become a driveling mess. We wouldn't even know how to live. And yet, there are times that it certainly helps to know something about the future, doesn't it? Children often ask mom and dad, what's next? What are we going to do after church today? What are we doing tomorrow? What's the next stop on the journey? What's next? What's after this? Now they don't imagine that their parents know everything about what's coming, but all of us at times benefit from having some sense, some sense of what comes after this, of where things are headed into the future. Knowing something about what comes after this determines to a large degree how we live. So the kids say, what are we doing after this? And dad says, I need some help around the yard and after that we're going to clean out the garage. That very much affects the attitude and the orientation of those kids right at that moment for some time to come. Or the kids say, so what comes after this? And mom says, well, the next thing is we're going to go out for some ice cream. That very much affects their attitude and how they look at the next few moments of life. You realize the vast majority of people in this world have no concept at all of what comes next. No thought in the world that that's even a possibility to know what the future might hold oblivious to the future, all that matters is this life. Who assembles the most toys? Who gets the most accolades? Who wins? Who gets their way? Who finds the best ways to escape? That's all that matters. Because that's all that's seen. For those of us who are born again followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, things are very different. Our Heavenly Father pours out His grace upon us by permitting us to peek into the eternal dimension. He does not tell us everything about the future. We'd never be able to handle it. But He reveals enough about what is to come that it profoundly affects the way that we live. At least it should. God gives His people a glimpse into the future and that vision of final reality has a major influence upon who we are and how we live in this waking world. We find such a life-influencing vision of what comes after in Revelation chapter 4. And I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Revelation chapter 4. It is a vision which provides a fitting close to our series on the theme of holiness. 
Revelation chapter 4, we need to recognize, is a pivotal transition point in a very complicated book of Scripture. There's a wide disagreement among biblical scholars as to when chapter 4 takes place. There are those that believe that it has long ago passed, and there are others that would say that it is yet to take place. So there's a pretty significant divide there on the context of Revelation chapter 4. These debates are not going to concern us here this morning. We will focus our attention on the theme of holiness that comes from this chapter. A theme that we've tracked over recent weeks through the biblical storyline. So understanding what holiness is, that God as the holy God in our first point of establishment is absolutely, incomparably, transcendently distinct. He is holy unlike anything else, holy consistent with the moral perfections of His being. And we've traced this theme through creation, through the Israelite exodus from Egypt, in the Mosaic law that God establishes, and in the life of the prophets as they call the people of God to a life of holiness. Then we move from the holiness of God to the holiness of God's people. That because God is holy, we are to be a holy people. A distinct people that lives in sync with God's perfections. As we labor against sin in the pursuit of holiness. Seeking to set sin aside and to grow in righteousness and faithfulness to the Lord. Here now... We come to the last book of the Bible and we gain a glimpse into the eternal realm. All that we've seen is looking at who God is and who we are to be in this life. Now we look into the eternal realm. And even with the disagreement as to when Revelation 4 takes place, all Bible believers would say that this does reflect the eternal realm. It is a vision of ultimate reality that further equips us to pursue a life of holiness. I'm going to labor, I think, through this sermon to bring the significance of Revelation 4 to our understanding and to my own understanding. But let's realize that as we look forward, just in that simple illustration of as children ask, what's coming next? So we as believers in a far more significant way are considering here what comes next. And what comes next profoundly affects the way that we live our life. Here is a vision into that eternal realm of what is real and what is there by faith we trust. We see, first of all, an invitation to see the future. Chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. After this, what we find in the book of Revelation is a series of judgments upon the earth. A time of great tribulation. We find the return of Jesus Christ. We find the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. We find the eternal state. What is to come after this? Again, some commentators take after this to mean real soon. I would understand after this to point to end time events, to that which is yet before us, but again, certainly applying to the present as we look at chapters 4 and 5 at least. 
And what we find here in verse 1 is an open door. God is providing John a clear glimpse into the reality of the eternal realm. He is saying, come and look into that realm. We don't see it in our daily lives. But here, John, in Revelation, uniquely and specifically is invited into that eternal realm to view it and to see what we can learn of God there. And What he sees is a vision of God enthroned in heaven, beginning at verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, in a spiritual state, I would take it, as opposed to the capital S here, but at once I was in the Spirit, he's entering a vision, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. Throne stands, that is, it is set, it is situated, and one seated on it, verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. They say this is a bit of a confusing scene to us. John is really grasping to try to describe what he sees here. He's not helping us a whole lot, honestly. He finds no language to actually describe God. He simply finds likenesses to a jewel-quality gleam that emits from God's presence. And above the throne, arching over it like a rainbow, John sees the presence of God with an emerald-like halo emitting from Him. It is a stunning scene of transcendent glory, far beyond the capacity of language to describe. I think we need to understand that as we try to just put in our minds these gemstones, the jasper, this clear, pure stone, the carnelian, this this blood-red, bright-red stone, and the green of the emerald. I mean, what is it, Christmas? we, We can't really even conceive of the beauty of it. And the words that he gives to it are really fairly limited. But there's majestic colors and there's a, there's a glowing sense of the presence of God and he does the best that he can to describe God on his throne. It becomes a little more clear when he talks about what is around God. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So from this point forward, we see the attendance of God on His throne and their songs that they sing in response. First of all, the attendance of these 24 elders in verse 4. These apparently smaller thrones encircle the throne of God. They infuse the scene with a sense of awe-inspiring importance. Seated on each throne is an elder, a dignified, greatly respected leader. Many believe that these elders are angels, but it's more likely, in my estimation, that they're glorified men for a couple of reasons. First, angels are never elsewhere in Scripture described as seated on thrones or as wearing crowns. Now, maybe they are here, but it would be the only place. But secondly, I think the word crown is a key. It's the Greek word, not diadem, a crown worn by rulers as a sign of authority, but it's the Greek word stephanos, a a, a type of crown worn by victors, by people who have conquered. So the stephanos was a wreath of foliage 
symbolizing victory or honor. And here the leaves are of pure gold. So it indicates here that there's been some kind of victory that has been won by these individuals. And in the book of Revelation, who is it that wins the victory? As we look at chapters even 2 and 3 particularly, those who are victors are those who have passed through in perseverance and have come into the eternal realm from this world. They have persevered in the faith. And so I think here we have those who have won a victory in the world of sin where Satan reigns. And they wear these gold wreaths on their heads, circled, wearing white robes, circled in these 24 thrones around the throne of God. It's an awesome scene. Much conjecture as to who the 24 are. We don't have any names. We don't even have an idea if they're angels or men. But perhaps, just to take a stab a representative of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, or something like that. But I think with this Stephanos idea, the fact that they're crowned, the fact that they're enthroned, indicates, some, indicates to some degree that they are people who have entered now into the eternal realm and, and are seated in some sense as representatives of the battle against sin and Satan and the victory of Christ, which will be seen more clearly in chapter 5. But added to these seated around the throne now are sights and sounds that John picks up. Verse 5, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. These visual, audible effects mirror the occasion when God descended onto Mount Sinai. We can't miss the connection there. there there's much activity. There is much activity in heaven and it all is pointing to this central throne where God is, in seat, is seated. We find then also in verse 5 the Holy Spirit, which I think is the point of the latter part of the verse. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. These torches, don't think of a stick uh, that you run into a cave holding up aloft as a torch in that way, but in the oriental sense of a fairly small vessel filled with oil with a wick that is burning. It again just gives an awesomeness to the scene as these seven lamps burn before the throne of God. Commentators are almost universal in the belief through various cross-references that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, to the presence of God's Spirit that pervades the universe. He has pictured the Spirit of God. It has to be symbolized in some way. It's symbolized at the baptism of Jesus as what? As a dove. Symbolized at Pentecost by the flames of fire, the tongues of fire that were hovered over the heads of those who were baptized in the Spirit that day. And here as these seven lamps, all of this symbolic imagery but I think a, a reference here to the Spirit of God. Verse 6, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So with the lightnings and the peals of thunder, with the torches burning, there is on the ground before this throne a, a floor of glass, as it were. We have sort of a, a cultural thing with the red carpet. We roll out the red carpet and, 
apparently it's supposed to be at a place where there isn't other carpet. But you, you, you roll out this red carpet and there's a, there's a softness there and there's a brightness there that says this approach to whatever it is is important. The red carpet's been rolled out. Here, it's not a red roll of carpet. Here, it is like a glassy sea. You ever seen a lake like that? I mean, is, there, is there anything that, that, that is just more peaceful and that draws you in than a lake that is just placid? It reflects like a mirror, the, the sky above. And so there's a sense here that with this, this so-to-speak, glass floor, this perfectly placid lake reflecting the colors that surround the scene, creating then in this way, in the unique approach to this throne, a sense of purity, of uncluttered, unstained, undisturbed peace in contrast to the tumultuous sea of human turmoil and strivings as the sea is pictured in other places in the book of Revelation. This pure glass floor leading to this glowing throne with the, with the lightning and the thunder and the lamps. It is an awesome scene surrounded by these 24 elders. There are other creatures worshiping God. We find at the middle of verse 6, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. These may be symbolic creatures, we don't know, but we see here that the first living creature, verse 7, is like a lion, and the second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Now, honestly, as you read that, doesn't that sound like a nightmare? That doesn't really sound very good. It sounds scary. I think it's supposed to be scary on one level, but I also suspect that it's our incapacity of our brains to come around this scene and see the wonder and the beauty of it all. There's something in these creatures. They're not hovering around the presence of God because they're ugly. They're hovering around the presence of God as we see every angel that attends the presence of God. There's something of exquisite beauty. We think of a creature with eyes all over it and that just scares us half to death. But the symbolism here is that God sees all things and these creatures made to hover in His presence see reality. They see everything the way that it is and they serve the Lord as watchers of the affairs of all of His creatures in His presence surrounding His throne as a tighter inner circle magnifying the glory and the uniqueness of God. Now the symbolism of the lion, the ox, the man, the eagle is difficult to discern and commentators have spilled a lot of ink over trying to figure out what they are. It's gone kind of, some of the ideas are pretty fanciful. Uh, there, there are some who have argued at great length that they stand for the four Gospels. Uh, there are others who say that they're the four tribes of Israel encamped around the tabernacle that led out in that section of the surrounding camp i it goes on and on as to what these creatures symbolize i don't think we can really figure it out but without going too far afield i think some are maybe maybe rightly suggested that they represent created animate life 
each creature being the chief representative of its species. Perhaps. But more important than who they are and what they're supposed to symbolize is what they say. Here we have direct revelation. Notice what they say. The living creature's message is found in the latter half of verse 8. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We would think of any repeating phrase over and over again would become very dull. We don't have the capacity to hear the same thing over and over again because we're finite creatures. But in the eternal realm, this is living in the moment of the greatest song you've ever sing and sung in praise to God. It's living in the moment of joy and exultation in His presence. And there's a wonder and a purity to this message that they proclaim that can only be sung over and over again because it bears witness to the holiness of this God. As in Isaiah 6, we find this threefold superlative for strong emphasis. Get this. God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The angelic creatures who represent animate life and who see all things clearly devote themselves to magnifying the incomparable transcendence of God. Remember, we're in the eternal realm here. We're seeing the ultimate reality. We're seeing what comes after this. And what we see is a holy God. Proclaimed and exalted and enjoyed and worshipped by the representatives of all things surrounding His throne. A particular emphasis here, the holiness of God, is His eternality. Who was, who is, and is to come. God always is. He is forever seated on the throne of the universe as the ultimate reality, the thrice holy sovereign God. This is always who He is. The lightning, the thunder, the glassy sea, the emerald halo, the glowing jasper, the carnelian-like effulgence, the elders, the attending angels, all of it points to the cosmic reality that God is holy, holy, holy that's where we're going that's where this world is headed indeed the four living creatures and the 24 elders now collaborate in worship at verse 9 whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. In verse 9, we see the 24 elders give glory and honor and thanks to God. In the eternal realm, God is thus magnified. Glory. 
honor and thanksgiving. When we really see the glory and the might of God in this vision, when we see Him for who He is in the eternal realm, we give thanks. All we can do is praise. Because He's revealed who He is to us. In verse 10, we see the elders fall down in homage before the throne. They cast their crowns. In the ancient world, it was an act of submission. A conquered king was expected to get down on his knees to bow down to the conquering king and to throw his crown at his feet. What does it say? By this act of homage, the elders acknowledge that even the victory crown, they're not throwing diadems down, they're throwing a Stephanos down. Even the victory that they have won is the result of the grace of God. All that has been done, all that they have accomplished in the name of the Lamb, they throw these crowns down at the feet of the Sovereign Lord and give thanks. Our victory redounds to your glory. As again, I know it's an interpretive decision, but understanding these as people who have conquered, we see here, I think, a glimpse into our future where every good deed will bring glory to God who has supplied it. Anything God's people accomplish will be turned back in praise to Him. And in that we will find joy and thanksgiving. And they sing another song. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. That's not that God lacks these things, that His attribute bank is empty. And so we've got, or, or, or lacking, and so we have to add power to Him. We have to add glory to Him. Not at all. But the glory, the honor, and the power are ascribed to Him because all honor and glory and power is His. And His creatures acknowledge that and find joy in celebrating that reality that this is who God is. They pour out their praise to Him. In the hymn of the four angelic creatures, God hol- God's holiness is linked to His eternality. What is God's holiness linked to here? Here it's linked to His creative power. All things have been created. By your will they exist and they are created. That is, in the mind of God, the world is conceived and then spoken into existence and preserved by the power of His might. Everything owes its existence to the Creator God. Its purpose, its design, and with His creative authority, He brings it into being and sustains it. We worship You. And we will worship the Lord forever and ever as the Creator and the Sustainer of all. As we see this vision, then, we're looking into what comes after this. We're looking at ultimate reality it reminds us of Paul's writings in Philippians when in light of Christ's conquest of the cross, which again, we won't deal with here so much today, but really is the theme of chapter 5 of Revelation. 
But remembering Paul's writings to the Philippians, in light of Christ's conquest on the cross, he said this, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what comes after. This is what's next. You may have come here today and you're not ready for that at all. To think that you will bow before the risen Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, you're not ready for that. You're not living your life in light of that reality. You're living blindly to this future event. I would encourage you, if that's where you are today, to seek the forgiveness of God. To be reconciled to Him. To run to this Christ in all of the fearfulness and the awesomeness of this picture to yet come to Him as the One who will provide through His death and resurrection the forgiveness of sin. Be reconciled to God. Run to Christ. So that when you bow the knee in eternity to Him, you will do so in joyful reverence. If there would be any crown of victory on your head, that you would gladly cast it down at His feet. Don't go into eternity and bow before Christ in fear and with lack of preparation. Know that this is the future. We will stand before the living Christ. Don't go in rebellion. Go as one redeemed by His sacrifice. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, let's say it again to our own minds, to preach the sermon to our own souls, this is what comes after. And that radically affects the way that we live. The very center of all reality is the sovereign reign and exaltation of the Lord God Almighty That's the center of it all. That's where it's all headed. That's the reality of heaven now and will be the reality of God's rule forever even here on the renewed earth. This revelation should set our focus on the pursuit of holiness. I think without this peace, all that we've said about pursuing holiness is really kind of hollow. But knowing that this is where it all ends, now we're motivated that direction. We live our lives blind, if we live our lives blinded to the future, if we, like the atheists, believe this life is all, what compelling reason do we have to pursue holiness? There might be some practical effects that would help. Sin is destructive. But even there, we begin to reason down a dead end because it's destructive because of who God is. But if there there is not this vision, if this life is it and that's how we live, then why live in holiness? But if this revelation is true, if this is a true glimpse into the reality of the eternal realm, if it is the case that this eternal realm will forever magnify the holiness of God, 
This truth about the future will profoundly affect the way that we live our lives. It's not all about me. It's not all about what I want. It is about meeting a holy God. Since we know this is what comes after, this is the future, we then calibrate our lives and they begin to look and track a certain way. We magnify the splendor of God in all things. Paul Perdue just mentioned in our call to worship today, that what we're doing here most reflects eternity. That doesn't mean we're going to sing throughout all of heaven or throughout all, all eternity. That's not what he meant. But, that, but there's truth in that. What we do here reflects where we're headed. Our songs are weak. Our expressions are weak. Our sense of the wonder and the splendor of the holiness of God are certainly far to be, if not infinitely improved in eternity. But... It is here, as we gather on the Lord's Day each week, that we recognize this reality. We live in light of what is to come. So we live our lives magnifying the splendor of God in all things. We don't do that so well. So secondly, it means that we learn to hate sin and live a life of repentance. We seek to willingly acknowledge when we walk outside of the holiness of God and to turn from that sin, recognizing that it's wrong, and wanting and longing to be pure people. People who would find pleasure standing in this scene, on this glassy approach, with all of its magnificence, and saying, this is my God. We're really heading there. We're going to walk into this place. Then we prepare by seeking to live a holy life. Thirdly, disciplining ourselves to pursue holiness. Giving ourselves to that purification process that we may ever be fitting ourselves to stand in the presence of God. As troubling as that is, as fearful as that is, clinging to Christ crucified and risen, knowing that He is our security He is our sufficiency. Number four, it will look like this. We will turn our love away from the world system and the godless philosophies that prevail in our times. There's a challenge there for all of us to know how and when and where to differentiate ourselves from this world. But we're going to continue to seek through thinking God's thoughts after Him to purify our thoughts, to purify our minds, to to lay hold on the philosophies of truth. We will live, if I can overarch it all, in anticipation of this heavenly reality. This is what's to come. And it affects the way we live here if we walk by faith. If we walk by sight, if we walk simply by the passions of the flesh, by the philosophies of this world, we won't be preparing at all for this scene. But if we know what is to come, and we walk in faith that this is the vision of reality that God has provided for us, then we grow in holiness throughout our lives, being pulled ever more forward to this very place. In 1741, George Friedrich Handel composed his world-famous oratorio, Messiah. Somebody asked George, what was the source of your inspiration. 
I mean, it's a work that seems to have been uniquely touched by God in its orientation, in its capacity to bring glory to the Lord. And Handel responded with this sentence. He said, I saw the heavens opened and God upon His great white throne. I don't think that was a marketing blurb. You want to write great music? Write with eyes fixed on the sovereign reigning Lord of eternity. You want to do anything well in life, whatever it is, whatever job, whatever occupation, whatever good thing you give yourself to, you want to do it well, know what is to come after this. And live your life in light of this scene. Know that in the eternal realm is a glorious sovereign God who was and is and is to come. A God who is the Creator and Lord of the universe. Know that He created all things for the purpose of displaying His glory and finding its consum- all consummation in Him. And know that if He created it, He can destroy it. And know that if He can destroy it, He can remake it new. And He will. And while He delays... And while we slog along in this world with all of its pain and its trouble, we can rest in the fact that He reigns sovereignly over His creation. This is a vision of the future. This is a vision of what is to come. This is a vision of now. It's a vision of the reigning Christ over all things. And that changes everything. We can rest in the fact that God is sovereignly steering this world to its destined conclusion. Our world's out of control. Our God is in control. And we can know that never are we closer to reality than when we worship Him and purify our souls to enter His presence someday because this is where we're headed. So the song that should really echo over our days on this crumbling planet is a song that we find here in Revelation 4 and 5. If you'll join me, let's read that song together. Reading together in unison Revelation 4, the latter part of verse 8 that starts with the word holy. Let's hear the echo of this song among God's people as the sense and revelation of ultimate reality. Reading together, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then verse 11, read with me. Verse 11, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. 
And then the song of 5, verse 9, starting at the word worthy, 5, 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And verse 12, the hymn that is there, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the hymn there, verse 13, to Him, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might. This is reality. This is what comes after. May it change us. Let's bow for prayer. As we continue, Father, in prayer, we ask that You would be glorified in and through us as a congregation, as individuals assembled here who claim Christ as Savior. I pray that we grow in holiness and we pause before You to ask that You would do a unique work to enable us to persevere to continue forward, to become the people that You want us to be and to live in light of this ultimate reality of Your holiness. If there's someone here without Christ as Savior, we anticipate that there certainly are. And I pray that those individuals would see the wonder of Your holiness, but also the danger of it. This glory these shining lights and flashing lightning bolts and thunder is not without its danger. But I pray, Father, that we might find our security in Jesus Christ, that we can walk boldly into this scene, not because of who we are, how good we are, who our families are, what we've done but because Jesus Christ has claimed us as His own. And we, in faith, are walking in persevering trust in His death and resurrection. Bring to that place of saving grace those who know not Christ as Savior and help them to seek out that forgiveness today in light of the reality of what is to come. I pray that you'll work uniquely among us and purify us as we see this vision and live our lives in its light in increasing ways. Aid us to this end, we pray, in the name of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We are a moment.